Thanks, Sonia. Let's just take a moment to pause and pray together. God, thanks for your word. Uh, as we do each week in this time of our service together, um, we ask you, uh, Father, Son, Spirit, to be our teacher. Uh, we recognize that your word is given to us as a gift um, from generations ago, that especially with stories like this, that we feel so far removed from these places and these experiences. And so we need you, Spirit, to unite us with them as a people who are seeking to follow you with, uh, faithfully. Um, so open us up, we pray, Lord. Um, show us how we are part of this story. Um, reveal to us places in our lives where we need to maybe listen to the hard word that's in here, but also uh, reveal to us in this word where there's grace. And you give us courage to follow you today. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, one of the um, most common mistakes in interpreting the prophets, especially Ezekiel, if you've read Ezekiel, especially we skipped over part of chapter one, is that um, interpreters often get bogged down in the minor details and sort of overinterpret the text. And so, for example, a lot of commentators I've been reading build extensively on the, the meaning of chapter one, verses four to twenty-eight. This part we. We skipped over, and his, God, uh, Ezekiel's vision of God's glory. So if you've read that, there's four creatures. There's, they have wings. They have faces of lions, um, oxen, eagles. They have human hands, and they're on top of wheels, and they're, they're carrying this vault upon which God uh, is, and there's, there's, there's all kinds of stuff going on. It's sitting. It's this very strange vision that commentators have struggled to interpret. In fact, John Calvin said this about it. I thought it was just so winsome. He said, if someone were to, someone were to ask me what I thought of this vision... And whether or not it was clear, I would confess it is not. (laughs) Indeed, it's very obscure, and I do not profess to understand it. And I'll just tell you right now, church, nor do I, Um, which is one reason we're skipping it. But um, (laughs) the other reason is is there's two things I think about that vision that are are absolutely clear. Uh, Number one, it's, it's a vision of God's glory. So it's the image of God's absolute otherness. Like if you can think of a uh, just a, it is such an other image. You know, like God's incredible power and immensity, like these creatures that are massive to carry God. That's number one. And number two, here's the other thing we definitely know about that vision. God's glory is appearing to Ezekiel in Babylon. In Babylon. And uh, and the reason that's significant is what we discover in these first encounters with Ezekiel in chapters one to three the glory of God had previously, if you know the story of Israel, been confined to Jerusalem and the temple, specifically the temple in Jerusalem. And now you see the glory of God roaming the mountains and the ravines and the river gorges of one of Israel's arch enemies, Babylon. And, and it's first, so first this glory is beside an irrigation canal, like an irrigation ditch, which is strange. And now wandering this broad Mesopotamian river plain, I think the equivalent for us would be the Columbia Gorge. Just dry, desolate, deserted, no cell phone reception. <laughs> like, and the reason that's significant is that it suggests that God's presence and revelation that comes from that encounter with that presence can be experienced nearly anywhere and by nearly anyone. As C.S. Lewis famously says in one place, you can't keep God in a box. You just can't do it. And, and so God addresses us, whoever we are, wherever we are. There's this great story I, I heard once by a mentor of mine, Bob Eckblad, who started a ministry up in Burlington and Mount Vernon called um, Tierra Nueva. And they do outreach to um, migrant farmers in that community as well as uh, inmates, uh, Latino inmates in the Skagit Valley Jail, a lot of who have been picked up because 
They had a broken taillight, didn't have a driver's license, whatever, and then they get detained and deported. And so they do this work amongst that people. And he tells this story that, um, of a time where he had these two guys that were in solitary confinement in uh, the state penitentiary in Walla Walla. Uh, their names are Manny and Pukey, and those are just... Those are just names. Don't get stuck on the name Pukey, but it's his name, this guy's name, who I actually met, really wonderful guy. But Bob told this story once. He says that Manny, um, he's on the phone with Manny. He's in Burlington, and, and this guy's in, in solitary confinement in Walla Walla, and so they're on the phone. And he writes that Manny tells me he, he's been really depressed lately, that he's felt submerged in darkness. And so they previously, when, they were, when he was there in Burlington together in their Bible study, been exploring Genesis together, the early chapters of Genesis those words that say, in the beginning when God was creating. And so he points out that God is present in that story in darkness. If you know much about solitary confinement, it is a dark place. And God is creating in that dark place. And so he asks Manny this question, do you feel God's presence with you in the darkness of your cell? And Manny says, yes, without hesitation, I feel God right here with me all the time. And so Bob's kind of stunned. He says, well, how? How are you feeling God's presence right now? He says, like today, I felt it today. And then he goes on to tell this story while he, he reads his Bible in his cell. He's a light of a Bible. And he's been reading the Psalms. And earlier in the day, he had come across Psalm 23. And he decides to read that to his fellow inmate, Pukey, who's also in solitary. And Bob's like, hold on. Uh, how do you read to Pukey while you're in solitary confinement? That doesn't seem to work for me. He says, well, we have, we have our ways. We learn a lot of interesting things here in jail. And he goes on, he says, we both learned that if we flush our toilets at the same exact time, we empty the water from the pipes and we can actually talk through the toilets. And now some of you are laughing, it's a true story. And so just this morning, Pukey, our man, he goes on to say, we did just that. We emptied our toilet bowls and I, and I read to him Psalm 23. And it touched him. And man, it touched me. And Bob says, I nearly dropped the phone because it's as if I'm hearing the voice of God. He goes on to say, um, Manny, that's amazing. Do you know that in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it says this, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and then God said, let there be light. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters of your toilet bowls. And Manny's blown away. I'm blown away. I'm caught off guard by this unexpected, unorthodox rereading of God saying, let there be light. And then Bob says this, over the waters, this is him writing in his book, I'm reading the Bible with the damned, over the waters between the toilets, the spirit hovers, and God speaks light to people alone in their cells. God speaks this word through Manny, condemned to solitude in this eight by eight cinder block cell, yet it's precisely through men like Manny that God reveals. God comes with such humility that God is not ashamed. Listen to this. God comes with such humility that God is not ashamed to speak even through the soiled ceramic lips of toilet bowls. Have you ever had an experience of God like that? An encounter with God where he's speaking to you surprisingly, unexpectedly, abruptly. (laughs) God's speaking through a toilet bowl of your life, so to speak. And the key here is this whether it's this dramatic instance I just shared or just simply gathering in a high school cafeteria as we used to do <laughs> or being alone in your own kind of experience of that, uh, that solitary confinement. The notion that God can speak and be present in our lives is significant because in those days of Ezekiel, God spoke in and through prophets and priests and only at appointed 
sacred times and in appointed sacred places. God didn't speak through exile. God didn't speak through deposed priests like Ezekiel. And God certainly didn't speak through toilet bowls. He didn't. God's presence, as I've said, was enthroned in the temple. Jerusalem was God's eternal dwelling place. And now Jerusalem is laid to ruin. The temple's burning. Its sacred objects, including the Ark of the Covenant, which is the place in which God sat, have been plundered and probably placed on somebody's mantle. And what's more... As Ezekiel later observes in the book, the glory of the Lord, this fiery presence is here now in exile amongst the exiles, hovering like the spirit over the waters of darkness in Manny and Pukki's prison cell. And so here's the deal. If we're going to understand Ezekiel's message, <laughs> we must first seek to understand what it meant for the people of that day to encounter God in that way. Like through exile. It's not merely they happen to be living somewhere else, you know, like they're just in a... This isn't Disneyland. This isn't... Um, Great Wolf Lodge, like this is exile. It, you know, their entire world, maybe Great Wolf Lodge is this for you, like it's, your entire world is caved in on you. But that's truly, that's definitely their world. Their view of God, God's presence, and their lives is just total disorientation and the need for God to completely reorient them to a different reality. And so why, this is why this morning I want, what I want to do is we continue to build this foundation to understand the rest of Ezekiel is first explore that experience of exile, how primal that is to our lives today, okay? Not just some ancient Near Eastern biblical thing. It's here today now. So we're going to look at three features uh, here in chapter 3. First, the meaning of exile, and that's in verses 22 and 23. We'll back up a little bit, look at the reason for exile in verse 26, and then we'll look at the opportunities within exile in verse 27, okay? So first, the meaning of exile, and this is in verse 22, 23. Let me read verse 22 again where Ezekiel says, the hand of the Lord was on me there. Remember, there is this Mesopotamian plain. And he said to me, get up. Oh, I'm sorry, that's the Kibar River. And then he said, get up and go out to the plain, and there I'll speak to you. And so a single word, actually a single word, captures this, the amazement of these first moments more than any other word. And it's a simple word, there. <laughs> so it's emphatic in its position, there I'll speak to you. And in that way, it kind of focuses on the contrast between what's being described or about to be described and where it's happening. You need to pay attention to where it's happening. When Israel was taken into exile in 587 BC, the people of Israel were uprooted from the place which they were born, most of them, the land that they'd been promised for generations, Abraham, all these, Moses, all these people, which they possessed, their identity as a people of God was shaped. They were blessed to be a blessing. And now that's gone. That's gone. They are forced on a forced march, 700 miles across the Middle Eastern desert. They leave home. They leave temple. They leave hills. Now they're in Babylon. Customs are strange. They don't understand the language. The landscape is completely featureless to them. There's nothing beautiful about it to them. The landmarks are gone. Uh, the weather's different. The faces are different. The food's different. The conditions of life, are, just everything's utterly different. There seems to be the most fitting word for where they're what they're experiencing right now. Like I said, this isn't vacation. This isn't a camping trip. This isn't Disneyland. This is exile. Exile is actually what some commentators describe as the ancient Near Eastern version of the Holocaust. Um, it's the absence of God. It's real, real brutality. These are slaves now. Eugene Peterson uh, writes about it this way. In that way, um, Israel's exile is a violent and extreme form. It's extreme of what all of us, all of us, every one of us in the room experiences from time to time in our own lives. So he says that inner experiences of exile take place 
even if we never move from the street that we were born and raised on. I don't know how many of you are living where you were raised or born. Like, just real quick, how many Seattle natives do we have here? Wow, that's cool. So, you, you know, you might go, yeah, I don't understand what that looks like. But even if you're living where you were kind of brought up, Eugene Peterson says, we're exiled from the moment we take our first breath, from the womb as we begin this life in a strange and harsh world. We're exiled from our homes at an early age, and we find ourselves in the terrifying, demanding world of high school and middle school. So congratulations if you graduated this morning. <laughs> life doesn't go on. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we're exiled from school, and some of you that stood, uh, and now you're having to figure out how you're going to make your way in the world of work. You know? I don't care what the unemployment rate is today. Like, is there going to be meaning in my work? Value? Am I going to do what I I trained to do? Like, all those questions are coming to you right now, right? We're exiled from our hometowns. We have to find our way in new states and new cities. Now, how many of you moved to Seattle? Just a real quick pull of hands for work or school. I guess it'd be the rest of you, right? No? Somebody. Like a lot of us. So we understand what that looks like to be exiles. We're not from here. We live here. We may love it. We may hate it. I don't know. I mean, these experiences of exile, Eugene Peterson says, whether they're minor or major, they continue throughout our lives, no matter what, uh, whether there's a change in government, I don't care what politic you are, changes in values, changes in your bodies, change, everybody's body here is changing, um, changes in our emotions, our families, our marriages. Uh, we barely get used, he says, to one set of circumstances, and, and then we're forced to deal with another one. It's every day. And then this is a, a little fitting quote from the end of that section in one of his books. He says, The exile experienced by the Hebrews is a dramatic instance of what we all experience simply by being alive in this world. So welcome to exile is kind of what he's saying. And so the biblical image of, of life in exile has never, I don't think it's ever been more fitting than it is today. Like we live in a time in, where people, in which people are experiencing a growing sense of alienation from the world around them. And yet the Bible says, even though we find ourselves there, there is God. Did you see that in verse 23? God says, get up, go to this plain, and I'll meet you there. And so I got up and went to the plain, and the glory of the Lord was standing there. Like the glory I'd seen before the Kibar River. And that way, it's this remarkable, in remarkable similarity to Psalm 139, which asks this very poignant question, where can I go from your spirit, O God? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down into my bed in the depths at night, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, you're there. If I'm in an eight-by-eight prison cell, you're there. God is there in Babylon, the wasteland of their lives and really the wasteland of our lives. So that's amazing if you think about it. The God of Israel appearing and extending and speaking a hand of grace and mercy there in the land of their ruin. A land of loneliness, confusion, despair. This powerful presence, the palatable presence of God and his glory revealed and experienced there. Which is, I think, a good reminder, just by way of application to us, that whatever our experience today, whether you can identify, like you're all in, exile, yep, that's me, or you're just like, yeah, I understand what you're talking about, but I'm, actually things are going pretty good. Um, whatever your experience of God in your own life today um, and of exile, there are times when our doctrinal conviction of God's omnipresence everywhere all times needs to become an experienced reality. Like we talk about God's always there, everywhere, all the time. 
God with us. We have a whole season, Advent, devoted to that in this theoretical, theoretical and abstract sense, don't we? And then we complain and wonder, where is God when I need him? Where is God in church on Sunday? Where is God when I'm at work toiling away with menial tasks? Where is God when my marriage is falling apart? Where is God when I can't seem to get anything right? Not parenting, not faith, not goals, not dreams. Where is God when there's cancer? Where is God when there's anxiety? Where is God when there's infidelity? Where is God? You want to know where he is? He's there. That's what this scripture is telling us. When we're in exile, in these first moments, God is revealing to us that he's there. (laughs) And so we may not be privileged with this overwhelming vision like Ezekiel got, you know, where he's on his face. And most of us will likely have to have someone point out to us that God is there. Like I'm trying to do for you, like Manny DeFrapuke in the jail cell. But that does not change the fact that God is there. And so wherever there is for you, where is there for you today? That's, I guess, the first question on the table. What's your there? Can you think of it? I just want to invite us to ponder that for a moment. Is it the loss of work? Is it the heightening sense of anxiety? Is it the lack of intimacy in marriage? Is it a lack of hope about our nation's future and what you're handing on to your own kids? What is it? What's your there right now? We all have one. Hold on to that for a second, because that takes us into this second point, and that's the reason for exile. And it's sort of vital, like I said, to rewind the tape a little bit. So we're there, <laughs> and yet, why? Like, why? If God created the, the world good, created us in his image good, why? Like, why are we there? Why are we this, in this place where just nothing feels like it fits? Our lives are dislodged, we're homeless wanderers, sojourners, as Scripture calls us. Why are our lives just in this constant state of impermanence, you know? And the answer really comes by way of a word Ezekiel uses in this passage, or I should say God's using, to describe Israel's attitude or their posture, which leads them into exile. And that's in verse 26 and 27, where God says they're a rebellious people. I'll make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so you won't be able to speak to them or rebuke them, for they are a rebellious people. But when I speak to you, I'll open your mouth and you'll, and you'll say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Whoever listens, let them listen. Whoever refuses, let them refuse, for they are rebellious people. A description of Israel that introduces us to one of the commonest features of Ezekiel's teaching in a prophetic style, which is this, never say anything once if you can say it a lot. <laughs> he says this over and over. and said, So twice in these two verses and then seven times in chapters two and earlier in chapter three, he just describes Israel over and over. You're rebellious, you're rebellious. You're rebellious. And so rebellion, from God's point of view, is what most characterizes the people of God and is the reason, the number one reason for their exile. And in that way, Ezekiel, he's not just repeating, he's, he's kind of repeating and amplifying, I think, a message that all the earlier prophets had said that God's judgment is not something inexplicable, inexplicable or arbitrary or unfair. That's what they kind of thought. Like, we don't deserve this. Maybe you think that. Um, Rather, it's this logical outcome of the covenant relationship they've made with God in the light of their history. So sin, according to Scripture, deserves punishment, and God says, I'm going to punish sin. Sorry, that's just what it says. And God, he said that about the Canaanites. He said that at the beginning of Israel's history, that he's going to treat them with the same moral consistency that he treats all the nations. So look at Genesis 15. Look at Leviticus 18. Look at Deuteronomy 9. I mean, it's all, it's all there on the page. 
And so Ezekiel is mercilessly pointing out that Israel behaved even worse than the nations. I mean, that's, that's Ezekiel 5, Ezekiel 16, it's all over the place. And though we may wince at that, we go, oh, that's so coarse and that's so bass-ackwards. Like, you know, once we recognize that Ezekiel is not engaged in this detached esoteric debate about sin and the consequences of sin, but he is amongst the exiles. He is an exile. He is one of them. <laughs> this is passionate, prophetic, evangelistic, pleading to his own people, repent. Like, turn back to God. Return to being God's people. That's what he's doing. Once you realize that's Ezekiel, that he represents the reality of, of judgment as a consequence for sin. That's, that's Ezekiel 4.17 that's coming at us. That he's experiencing that consequence himself. He's right alongside them by the Kibar River on this Mesopotamian plain. Once we realize that, that he's, you know, and that he's being faced with a people that refuse to acknowledge this, that, you know, they have this sort of self-congratulatory view of their own history. Oh, yeah, it's not that bad. <laughs> or they assume some sort of benevolent blindness on behalf of God. Like, he doesn't see that, and we say that. God loves the sinner. He hates the sin, right? We say that all the time. And they have this absolute, they have this view, they believe they have this absolute eternal right to the privileges of land, city, and temple. God will always bless us because of who we are. They believe they could do no wrong, right? And we pray that all the time. God bless us. God bless us. Just God bless us, right? And in that context, and to those people, Ezekiel is sent to preach this message. As one commentator says, Ezekiel's tirades against Israel's sin were necessary to bring at least some of his listeners, not all of them, to a realistic sense of their condition, right? It's just like an ancient Near Eastern version of AA is what it is, and thereby to genuine repentance. And, and this, this commentator then says, such armor plating on their part could only be pierced by some sort of high-grade explosive. This is just high-grade explosives, like to blow up their sense of who they think they are. And that way, you could just say exile is God's way of getting Israel's attention and ours. Just a way of getting our attention. Attention that's intended to galvanize action. Action that's intended to be, lead to genuine repentance and change. Change where there will always be a promise of life. Always. Because God is the God of life. And, uh, you know, that's always been God's heart for us as his people. To give us life and life to the full. And that's the reason behind exile is that we reject the promise of life. We just want to shortcut our way to life and not acknowledge that we experience death all the time. And we live in a fallen world, and we're fallen people. And yet, if you read this story sometime, um, you know, wrapped around these graphic descriptions of Israel's rebellion, it's really hard for God to get their attention. This is kind of what's in this, packed in this phrase, uh, again and again, they're, they're not willing to listen to that, you know? In verse, chapter, verse 7 of chapter 3, the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you because they're not willing to listen to me. They're just, they're hardened, they're obstinate. So bad is their sense of hearing that other prophets would say, like, they have eyes, they can't see, they have ears, they can't hear. You know, that's Jeremiah 5.21. This is one of Ezekiel's contemporaries. That's a phrase, actually, if, you, if you've heard that before, it's something that Jesus picked up on in his teaching. That's symptomatic of, of not only his adversaries, he talks about the Pharisees that way, but also his disciples. That, that the people who are seeking most faithfully to follow him have ears, but they can't hear. 
They're just so hardened by the world around them and their experience of sin that they just can't hear that God would want to have a different way. Which points this this reality that rebellion is not merely a hallmark of notorious sinners. Like you might be going, I'm not a notorious sinner. I'm I'm a good person. And you probably are. But rebellion, the lack of the ability to hear God is actually emblematic of every one of our lives. It's something that you know, the so-called faithful we, we struggle with. It, and so exile persists because of our unwillingness to listen. Um, Henry, now in this book that we're, we've given to our graduates, it's called Making All Things New. And um, I hope you guys enjoy this. It, it does talk about vocation and kind of how to walk into your vocation. And our staff read this a while back. He says this in that book. He says, from all I've said about our worried, overfilled lives, it's clear we're usually surrounded by so much inner and outer noise that it's hard to truly hear our God when he's speaking. We've often become deaf, no one says, like people with ears that can't hear, unable to know when God calls us and unable to understand in which direction he's calling us. Thus our lives have become absurd lives. In the word absurd, no one says, we find the Latin word certus, which means deaf. And God doesn't want us to live absurd lives. You know, a spiritual life, he says, requires discipline because we need to learn to listen to God who's constantly speaking but whom we're seldom hearing. Constantly speaking but whom we're seldom hearing. So that begs this question as we move on to this final point this morning. How have we, or you, become like Israel in your life? You know, you know you're in exile, but in what ways are your ears closed off to God? God's invitation to leave that place, to recognize why you're in that place. Could be circumstances out of your control. Could be stuff that very much is in your control. Why are you there? In what ways are you not listening to God's invitation, whether that's a hard word, like this word to Israel, like a word of correction, a word of challenge, or just simply an invitation to live by faith, not by sight, to get up, to walk, to repent, to turn and return. Take a step of courage toward God, to be all ears for God. Like whatever God says, are we holding tightly to our expectations of like how our lives should go and how our stories should be written? Or are we listening for God's voice and just letting God lead us? What is it for you? Uh, so that's, that's the hard stuff here. <laughs> like why exile? Which brings us to this final point. And really the good news. So in verse 27, we see some opportunities for exile. Actually, there's a broader context that I'll talk about. But prophets like Ezekiel actually insist over and over, as you read Ezekiel through and all the way through, exile's not the end. It's, this is just chapter 3 we're in. And even though there's lots of doom and gloom, all throughout there's hope, hope, hope. So God's purposes remain. God's promises remain. There's like so much more in store for your life. So whatever your exile right now, it's not the end of the story. It's just not. And uh, so God's teaching us through their exile something about the process of transformation, that that's what he's doing. Like we can learn to live in the midst of exile. Exile can be, like Eugene Peterson says, the crucible of, of our faith, pushed to the edge of existence where they thought Israel, thought they were hanging on to the, by the skin of their teeth. Israel found, listen to this, that they had in fact been pushed to the center of existence, where God was. They experienced not bare survival, but abundant life. Now they saw their previous life as subsistence living, 
a marginal existence absorbed in consumption and fashion and empty ritual and insensitive exploitation. Now, exile has pushed them from the margins to the center, to the vortex, where all the issues of life and death, love and meaning, purpose and value form this dynamic, everyday participation in God's future with them. That's what exile is doing. It's pushing you to the center. It's hard, but it's pushing you to the center. And so to conclude, there's three opportunities really quickly I want to invite us to sort of consider. And really, these are kind of your take-home. I mean, if you want homework or application, here it is. So listen, three things that I think we can learn from Israel's uh, exile for our lives. The first is the opportunity to lament. You know, we all know Psalm 137. Uh, By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept and remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us to sing songs. Our, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us the songs of Zion. This is a picture of Israel beside the Kibar River on the plain of the Babylonian uh, empire. And, and Babylon's taunting them, saying, hey, sing those old songs. It's like, you, it's like if you can imagine yourself in a neighborhood bar, let's sing some bar songs, right? Yeah, make us happy. And in Israel, I can just hear them saying, how, how can we do that? Like, how can we sing those songs in this foreign land? This place doesn't work for that. It's not, it's not the context in which that's supposed to happen. So they don't. Not while our homeland lies in ruin, as well as our hopes, as well as all of our hopes and dreams of the lives we thought we'd be living. You know, not while we're experiencing brutality at your hands. No way. And in that, to put that in the frame of our own lives, not while you're facing cancer, can you sing the song? We often sing songs of joy here. And you're, some of you are like, I can't sing those songs. I've heard you tell me this. Not while you're struggling with anxiety and depression. Not while there's big questions churning in your life about your future and your dreams. Like, not while you lack any semblance of hope. How can you sing about hope when there's no hope? I can't sing those songs. I, I'm going to confess to you, I often don't. I stand here and I'm just like, hmm, I can't do that today. Um, this isn't a musical <laughs> Like, we're, our lives are not sort of the sound of music. That's not what this is. This is reality. It's harsh, and it's unforgiving, right? And so here's the invitation, I think, in Psalm 137. Don't sing those songs. Sing a new song. Uh, don't give up all hope and just stop singing like I often do and just give in. This is how life is. It kind of stinks. Um, learn a new way of praising God. Sing new songs. Learn a new language of communicating with God. That's what lament really is. A third of the Psalms are all lament. And that's just Israel in this experience of Babylon writing new music. You know, I, uh, when I was in seminary, I studied uh, Darfur. I, I, did, I had a professor from South Africa, and he did a residency at Princeton for a semester. And so he invited me to sort of study some, a community in, in uh, Sudan and uh, basically a community of women who were refugees, whose sons and father and, and husbands were taken, you know, lost boys, and ripped from their lives. Their communities burned to the ground uh, by the Mujahideen. And uh, so I got to study them. And I got to interview a few of them just, you know, by email and phone calls. And they told me what the, the, the thing that they, cre- they, they most remember about that season was for them, they had their, their homes burned, so they lost all everything. And they often, in a home in that day, just had one Bible. Like, we have Bibles on our phones. They didn't have that kind of stuff. So they lost any sense of anchoring to God. And what they decided to do is, very much like these exiles, they started writing new psalms. They could remember some of the old psalms from their childhood, but they just started writing new songs of lament, and that became their music. And so, I mean, I've got a couple of these on, like, a 
like a floppy disk. I can't pull off because I don't have a disk drive, but I might have got them. I really, and they're beautiful, like these songs of lament, a, a way for these women who'd lost home, lost sons, lost husbands, lost any sense of hope of communicating with God. They didn't give up on God. You know, they just said, hey, God, we believe in you. We're just going to believe in a different way. That's what Psalm 137 and exile opens up for us, a way in which we can relate to God within our experience of exile that's informed by exile, kind of paradoxically, which becomes the beginning of hope for us. Uh, You know, that's why I love the end of Lamentation, which is uh, really a, a catalog of those kinds of songs in the Bible. And the last verse of Lamentation says, Bring us back, God. We're ready to come back. Give us a fresh start. Like, I love that. I love this Jackie Hill Perry quote uh, on Twitter. She says, I'm thankful to God that God, through his prophets, would pen a book such as Lamentations. It tells me that God doesn't want us to ignore grief in the name of faith. Don't ignore grief in the name of faith. Don't do that. The Bible doesn't do it. That, that, in, that on our way to revelation and consummation that awaits us, there's going to be some crying. And that's good. That's a good thing. I love what Soong Chong Rai says. The prophets of Shalom were first students of lament. Be a student of lament. Like, the men and women who have experienced exile for generations upon generations have faithfully pointed us in the right direction, not by denying the reality of suffering, but by pointing to it, embracing it, and saying, there's God through it. You can, get, you can continue. Jesus wept. We love that verse. Do you know that he's not just weeping because his friend Lazarus dies? I mean, certainly he's weeping because he's sad. But Jesus' tears, if you know the Greek in that verse, are tears of anger. They're tears of lament. He's angry that death had once again taken the day, that had robbed the life of one of God's beloved sons, that had robbed the hope of his sisters. He's angry at Satan. And so he weeps. Tears of lament. Anger at the reality of death. Anger that death is intruding in God's story. Uh, Anger that he's going to have to die, I think. To get that story right... And Jesus, you know, before raising Lazarus from the dead, he's, he's rever- before reversing death, he just took time to do something that's open to all of us. And that's just simply lament. Lament. Okay? So that's the first thing. Is there space in your, your life and your theology and our music to do just that? To just simply say, God, why? God, why? Is there? Could there be? So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. In exile, we, we see an invitation to dream. So Psalm 126, a psalm that is actually written, if you read it, as a reflection back on this time. And it's called a pilgrim song. So the, the pilgrims would, uh, would march up to Jerusalem for festivals every year. And they'd sing these pilgrim songs. And you'll see Psalm one, you know, uh, 121, like all the, I lift my eyes to the mountains. They're singing these songs as they're marching. They're kind of on, on pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. Psalm 126 says this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Uh, and, and so dreaming in this sense presumably started, it didn't just start like when they got home. I, I believe it started long before their return. They were in exile for 70 years in Babylon. I think that's suggesting to us that even in the midst of, you know, when our lives have been torn down to the foundations and when nothing remains of the structures of the past, like when you're just kind of feeling anchorless, rootless, like you're, you're feeling like kind of homeless, you can dream about the future. Scripture is giving you permission to catch and cast a vision of hope, 
about God's future. Not to just lament, you know, though lament can be part of this, but to, to, to you know, look, look at the promises of God as faithful to restore you, to restore us, to, to move us beyond that experience. You know, I was reminded this last week of, of the, the paradox in exile between lamenting and dreaming of that great American prophet, Martin Luther King. And, uh, you know, that fa- his most famous address, I Have a Dream, the, this, this speech that every person, man, woman, child, doesn't matter your age or stage, your political persuasion, your education, your economic, like your income, every person knows at least something of that speech, right? And we know this, that Martin Luther King lived in a profound season of exile. So he's not, he's not preaching that, it's not really a sermon, but he's not giving that speech, especially if you read it sometime, as a, it's not a victory speech. It's lament, and it's also dreaming. He's looking forward to a time in which God is going to do what God says he'll do. He says, this is my hope. He's looking forward. And, and, and so we don't dream when exile ends. We're given space to dream within exile. Does this make sense to you? Uh, so we lament. We dream. And then finally, we have this opportunity. I already talked a little bit about this, but to listen. Verse 27 of, of Ezekiel 3. Whoever will listen, let them listen. I, I think that's a beautiful... We kind of latch onto the second part of that. Whoever won't listen, let them not listen. <laughs> but I just think there's great hope in that. Whoever will listen, let them listen. We have an opportunity to listen. Uh, you know, wisdom is, though we are born with the ability, most of us with the ability to hear, wisdom, which is the biblical word for hearing, is not something intrinsic to us. Like, it's, you know, we must learn to hear God's voice. You're not just born with that ability especially when we find ourselves in the midst of exile, right? I talked about this. And so we think of Jesus as the world's greatest teacher. You know, people flock to him. They hang on his every word. Uh, John talks about him in chapter 7 of John. Never has anyone spoken like this, right? Never. But we miss this critical fact that Jesus was first, before he was the greatest teacher on earth, the greatest listener on earth. So Jesus says this in John 12, I don't speak my own words. (laughs) The Father who sent me, Tells me what I'm going to say, which requires that he listens to God. And he wasn't born with that ability. He learned to listen to God. Each of us has to do the same thing. Remember those words of Henry Nouwen. Uh, actually, I don't think I read these words. Let me read these real quick, and we'll wrap up. He says this, <laughs> when we learn to listen, our lives become obedient lives. So remember he talked about being absurd and deaf, when we learn to listen, our lives become obedient lives. The word obedient comes from the Latin word audior, not absurd. And that word means to listen. Obedience is literally just listening. And a spiritual discipline is necessary in order to move us slowly from absurd lives to obedient lives. Lives filled with noisy worries to lives filled in which there's some free inner space where we can listen to God and follow God's lead. Jesus' life was an obedient life because he was always listening to the Father. Always attentive to his voice. Always alert to his directions. Jesus, you could say, was all ear. And so what about you? Um, God is speaking. Are you listening? Like, we need to learn to listen if our lives are going to become obedient lives, freed for obedience, where there's, where there's an opportunity for us to move forward in faith in our experiences of exile. And so that's my prayer for us. 
that God would give us the grace to listen. Not the ability, but the grace that he would just gift it to us. Um, especially when we're in these seasons like many of us are in, of, of profound exile. So may God open our ears, so to speak. Make us all ears so he can lead us home, okay? Let me just take a moment to pray. I'll invite the worship team forward.